Welcome to Heart to Heart with Anna, featuring your host, Anna Jaworski. Our program is a program designed to empower the CHD or congenital heart defect community. Our program may also help families who have children who are chronically ill by bringing information and encouragement to you in order to become an advocate for your community. Now, here is Anna Jaworski. season of Heart to Heart with Anna. Our theme this season is Carpathian, Seizing the Day, and we have a great show today. This season, we'll be discussing an age-old concept, Carpe Diem, which is Latin for Seize the Day, and which is taken from the Roman poet Horace's Odes, which was written in 23 BC. The Ode says that the future is unforeseen, and that one should not leave to chance future happenings, but rather, one should do all one can today to make one's future better. As the mother of a child born with a critical congenital heart defect, this expression became more salient and more relevant to me. I began to enjoy each day and even each moment even more because I knew I'd never get that moment back and that I really needed to cherish whatever time I had with anyone and everyone I loved. Today's show deals with a congenital heart defect survivor who really knows how to seize the day. Today's show is Seizing the Day with Jim Larson. Jim Larson was born in 1950 with Tetralogy of Fallot with partial transposition. He had a Blalock-Tussock shunt placed in 1953 at the University of California Medical Center, but he was still quite cyanotic and tired easily until at age 12, he had a ventricular septal defect repair at the University of Minnesota Hospital. He then became much more active thanks to the good medical care he has had over the years. He has married, raised two daughters, and had a career as a field forester. Following his surgery in 1962, Jim was able to be much more active. At his family's lake cabin in the summers, he would water ski, and in the fall, he retired due to placement of an implantable cardioverter defibrillator, or ICD, in 2006. But he continued to do forestry work on the side, as well as other work. Now he volunteers as a musician at his local hospital in the hospice program. Welcome to Heart to Heart with Anna, Jim. Well, hello. Welcome from Duluth, Minnesota, and I'm really glad to be on here. And yeah, I would say I've had a really, really full life. And <laughs> I think the older you get, I just turned 65. And as life goes on, and the older I get, the more fascinated and the more interested I get in a lot of things. I mean, music has been kind of my driving force, but so many things that I learned from forestry, just in terms of the ecological things that are happening in the world, watching climate change, just watching, you know, the different cultures of the world and how people are interacting. The older I get, it's hard to take it all in. And I just kind of cherish and enjoy so much of what I read in here. Speaking of reading, Jim, many people Mm -hmm. may know your name because you wrote for the book, The Heart of a Father. Your essay was actually the last essay in the book, and you were our pioneer man. And it seems like Mm -hmm. you really have these today in so many different ways, from being a forester to enjoying outdoor activities to your music and writing for a book. But it sounds like maybe the first 12 years of your life were rather difficult. How do you think having... So many problems in your early life affected your decisions later in life regarding all your different activities. Well, actually, the contrast was so dramatic because I have remembrances back to about when I was about three years old, which is about when I had what was called the Blaylock-Talsing shunt. But 
My dad was a career Navy pilot. We lived mostly in Virginia Beach in Norfolk. And during that time, I was quite cyanotic, could not really play with friends. If I played tag for more than about two minutes, I would just simply poop out and have to sit still and stuff. It took me a long time to climb stairs. It took me a long time to walk a block. I had swelled purple lips and fingers, so I looked quite different. And those are really kind of hard years. I had some friends that had some understanding and maybe would play Scrabble and Monopoly with me and stuff. And I had a mom that really loved me and used to talk to me a lot about family history and about all kinds of things because I was around the house quite a bit. I would try different things but just get really, really, really tired. We would take vacations to Minnesota And one of the things I remember particularly was climbing the stairway that goes down to Minnehaha Falls, which is a famous falls. It's right in Minneapolis. And I remember when I was back in those years when I was cyanotic, probably seven, eight years old, climbing the steps. There's there's a whole number of steps from the bottom to the top, stopping, sitting on a bench for five minutes, climbing another one, sitting on a bench for five minutes, climbing another one, sitting on a bench for five minutes, and just knowing what that was like. And then more recently, within the last year, I've been back to visit that favorite area, and I was down looking at the falls. In fact, I walked the creek all the way down to the Mississippi River, and then I came back up. Those same steps have not changed at all since the 50s, and I could walk right up them without any kind of shortness of breath or any any pauses or anything like that. It's just, you know, and even at the my age, that was just really miraculous that yeah. I could have that memory and then be able to make that kind of comparison and stuff. Well, your legs are a lot longer now, too, Jim. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. My legs are longer. I'm a little bigger kid and stuff like that. And So anyway. Well, really, it does give you an appreciation for how, I hate to use the word disabled, but how you weren't able to do that like you are now. You can just go straight mm-hmm. up and straight back down. It's, yeah. Yeah, I, I wasn't particularly disabled, per se, but I just had practically no energies to play normal things with kids. And so right. when I had the surgery in 1962, within the first week, once they let me out of the room, I got into a wheelchair and I pushed it up and down the hallway and there was kind of a steep ramp that connected another hallway. And I realized I could push that wheelchair up that steep ramp without getting winded. And I looked at my fingers and toes and my fingers were pink. And the transformation was pretty dramatic. And this was when I was in sixth grade. And so I pretty much recovered during the winter and spring of when I was in sixth grade. Summertime, I could actually ride a two-wheeled bike. I'd never been able to do that. So I was this happy kid riding all over the neighborhood on a two-wheeled bike, which other kids had been able to do since they were five or six years old. And it was just the joy of that. And then um, getting into junior high school, a little tougher because I had not been in sports. I didn't have any kind of coordination. You were kind of nothing Mm -hmm. back in the 60s unless you were in sports. And I tried, oh, football was out of it because I had wired my sternum. I tried wrestling, which I was actually fairly good at, except because of the wire in there. If somebody bumped me there, I was pretty much done. I tried basketball, but I was only five foot four and basically got killed. So, 
kind of reverted to a lot of outdoor things. I like doing painting. I probably should have been playing music in junior high and high school. I was the firstborn son of my father. My father really wanted me outdoors and doing outdoor things, not sitting in a house and painting and that kind of thing. And so that was kind of hard. But I finally found some really good friends when I was in high school and basically had a pretty good high school experience. But what really happened was when I got into college, there was an outing club called the Minnesota Rovers Outing Club. And what they did is they went backpacking, they went bicycling, they went winter camping, they went on trips to other countries, they had all kinds of social gatherings. But the amazing thing is, hey, I can do those things, you know, because you don't have to have a huge amount of coordination to learn how to bicycle long distance or backpack. And I learned how to winter camp and stuff like that. And that was a huge thing to me for the outdoors. Um, Yeah, the Minnesota Rovers. I've never heard of that before, but what a mm -hmm. fabulous group to help somebody. Yeah, it's a university organization. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the the other really big factor is, you know, after my surgery in 1962, he just really wanted a normal kid. And there was one thing that I was dealing with that wasn't really confirmed until the late 80s, is that I probably had a stroke during the open heart surgery at that time, and it caused a balance problem with me, more of a vertical kind of thing that used to really, really scare me a lot. And mm-hmm. and so I went through some series of counseling and all kinds of things when really that's what it was, was the physical fact that I'd had a stroke. And actually my challenges after the surgery in 1962 was not so much the residual heart defect I had, but was just dealing with two things, the emotions and just the ways of coping with this motion feeling. And then also a lot of stuff that was going on in my family that was rather difficult. My dad was really a pusher in terms of trying to get me normal but the one point I did want to make about that is with my dad pushing me getting me out duck hunting and deer hunting and stuff like that two things happened one is I learned the love of nature I learned the love of being outside and doing different things the other thing is because of the pushing I learned the pace I learned that I could do a hundred mile bicycle ride in eight hours There's crazies Mm -hmm. that'll do a 100-mile bike ride in two and a half or three hours. I don't have to do that, but I could do things at a pace, Mm -hmm. bicycling or walking or things like that. And that really allowed me to go into forestry and do my forestry career, even though I was only about 70% corrected at that time I went through. And I graduated from the University of Minnesota in 75 and... Worked for the Forest Service out in Butte, Montana, climbed up some pretty high mountains, then got a chance to move back here, and I got to work in the north woods of Minnesota for almost 30 years as a career forester. And I think it was a really, really good job because it kept me moving and it kept me healthy. And I'm really, sure. really, I'm really, really grateful for that experience. And then being able to stay here in a stable place, raise a family, have two daughters. So Absolutely. Uh, But we need Mm -hmm. to take a quick commercial break, Mm -hmm. but don't yet, listeners, because when we come back, we're going to talk to Jim about his philosophy of life growing up with a severe congenital heart defect and how his parents felt about him getting married and starting a family of his own when we come back after this commercial break. Anna Jaworski has written several books to empower the congenital heart defect, or CHD, community. These books can be found at Amazon.com or at her website, www.amazon.com babyheartspress.com 
Her bestseller is The Heart of a Mother, an anthology of stories written by women for women in the CHD community. Anna's other books, My Brother Needs an Operation, The Heart of a Father, and Hypoplastic Left Heart Syndrome, a handbook for parents, will help you understand that you are not alone. Visit babyheartspress.com to find out more. Welcome back to our show, Heart to Heart with Anna, a show for the congenital heart defect community. Today's show is Seizing the Day with Jim Larson, a congenital heart defect survivor. And he's been sharing with us how he has seized the day over the years and how having an open heart surgery when he was 12 years old totally opened the world up to him and enabled him to start to enjoy nature, do things with friends, go to college. I mean, it's such an inspiring story. But Jim, I want to know something. As the parent of a child who was born with a critical congenital heart defect, I knew that any day could be his last. And then suddenly I realized there are no guarantees. Any day could be my Mm -hmm. last with my husband or even my heart healthy son Mm -hmm. or even me. So that was the point when I finally quit worrying about what the future may hold and began to just cherish each and every day that I had with my family. So how does having a severe congenital heart defect like that for you affect your philosophy of life and how you want to live? Well, uh, actually, what I think I might do is is I think I might work backwards kind of with your questions. One. One of them, this is from recent things of making changes in my life, shifting from a forestry career. I was paid not a lot, but I worked in the grade schools for five years in with mostly kindergarten, second, third grade kids, and just mm-hmm. had a really wonderful time doing that. But then I always wanted to do music, and so I got into music and found an opportunity to play music in our local hospital. And particularly, I got into our hospice program. And so I'm playing music and visiting hospice patients, which has just been incredibly rewarding for me, just because of the joy of playing music. And also, they give you so much because you hear their stories and you honor these people. You know, mm-hmm. the lives that they've yeah. had and the difficulties that they've had. And I've kind of come up with three things that I try to keep aware of every day of my life. I kind of figured this all out in about the last three years or so. The first one is just having gratitude. Gratitude mm-hmm. for the day, gratitude for your family, gratitude for your friends, and just the people that you meet the interesting people that you meet every day. Gratitude can just be so many different things. I have Mm -hmm. gratitude for my parents for the things that they taught me and Mm -hmm. the things that I have around me. Plus, we we just live in a very, very beautiful place because we've got Lake Superior right here, and we look at it every day and the changes of it. The other one is forgiveness because Mm -hmm. I've had difficult times, particularly with my father and in other situations, and I just realized through time how much value there is in forgiveness and just saying, mm-hmm. okay, this happened at this point in time, but let's go from this point on and make the situation as best as it can. And I think the other thing that I try to work on is simply kindness and compassion. Having kindness for other people because your own joy of living is really wrapped around not only gratitude, but if you're if you're able to expel kindness to another person, you know, when they're having a, a hard situation or compassion. Compassion is really the same thing as kindness. Those are kind of the three things that I try to live by daily. By doing that, it makes me more able to give 
myself to other people, but I also get so many gifts in return. Oh, and, I totally agree. Mm-hmm. And I might refer to one. I mentioned this to you yesterday, but when I started into hospice, I was also taking a music program that kind of dealt with, and there's a little tiny book that I read. It's called The Art of Being a Healing Presence, A Guide to Those in Caring Relationships. And what it really is, and I think it really has a lot of seizing the day, is when you're seeing a patient or a resident in a nursing home or whatever kind of encounters you are, you think of kindness and you think of the present moment. You Mm -hmm. try to be in the present moment because when I walk in to see a hospice patient, the good thing that's healing for me is everything else goes out the door. And I just try to concentrate on that person, what that person's needs are, what that person wants to talk about, those kinds of things. So at my stage in life, it's just like life to me is really, really fascinating. The older you get, the more you want to learn. But these three things, gratitude, forgiveness, and kindness, which is really hooked in with compassion, are really the three things that kind of keep me going. I just, I love that. That's so amazing. No, you know what? I think that if you can keep three things in your mind constantly and live by those three Mm -hmm. principles, you're doing Mm -hmm. pretty well. (laughs) A lot of people in America (laughs) especially try to multitask and try and do too many things. But I think that you're right. Stick with the fundamentals. Be kind. Be forgiving. Not only of others, but of yourself. Because Mm -hmm. you will make mistakes Mm -hmm. and it's so common for people to beat themselves up over and over again because of mistakes they made in the past. But I like what you said when you first started answering this question, and that was that things that happen, you just have to let go of them and move on. And I think that's mm-hmm. beautiful, beautiful advice. So I have to ask you this because I have two sons, as you know, and I am mm-hmm. so curious about what life my sons will have after they get married and start their families. They're both young enough that they haven't done that yet. So how did your parents react to you getting married and then having children of your own? I think my mom was really, really delighted. My father, on the other hand, there was just a lot of difficulties in terms of me not being the, you know, the typical son he wanted. But through times, my siblings and I have worked out ways of, you know, ways of forgiveness and just working around some of these things. The other thing is, when I was very, very young, particularly when I was cyanotic, I knew I had a serious problem, and I never thought that I would live to be 15. But then when I got to 15, I never thought I would live to be 20. And then yeah. and then once I got to 20, got away from my parents' house, started going to school, then I didn't worry about it anymore. It's just like mm-hmm. that transition, especially when I started doing a lot of outdoor things. It's just, okay, I have the health. I can do these things. So that fear just kind of evaporated. Now I'm 65, having problems with varicose veins and kind of laid me up this summer. And I start getting worried about all these things that happen as you age. But even then, if you have restrictions put on your life by other things, you learn to adapt. I mean, I have... Mm-hmm. I have lots of things that I call in my back pocket that if I can't do this, I can do something else. I do stained glass. I deal with family history. I was very involved with bringing Central American refugees 
up into the United States and Canada during the 1980s, and I have all the archives of that and mm-hmm. doing something with that. I mean, I have so much stuff, and I may be facing another thing coming up that may change what I'm doing. I can always play music. That's my joy, but I also can learn to adapt. You I are. Think people, you are so and adaptable. I, <laughs> and I think people with congenital heart disease, because to be honest with you, it is chronic. It is a chronic mm-hmm. thing because even these days, they can repair the type of condition that I had in practically a one-year baby. They can correct the antinomical condition that exists there, but there are other things that will crop up later in life, heart rhythm problems and other things that are related to that. Mm-hmm. And there's an organization I'm involved with, the Adult Congenital Heart Association, which deals with people that are growing up that were born with a congenital heart disease. It's it's learning how to take care of yourself and it's learning how to adapt when mm-hmm. certain restrictions get put on you. And right now, because of my varicose vein problem that just kind of blew up on me last spring, I don't think I can go tromping around in the deep woods bushwhacking through like I used to. I'm going to have to be really, really, really careful with my legs. I can still get out in the wintertime and do stuff. Mm-hmm. I just simply adapt to what I have. Absolutely. And learning how to adapt is a skill that any human being needs to have, whether they have a heart Mm -hmm. defect or not. Well, we need to take another quick commercial break. Thank you so Mm -hmm. much, Jeff, for everything you've shared. Listeners, don't go away yet, because after the commercial, we're going to talk to Jim about the biggest obstacle that he is having to live with on a daily basis and what advice he has for survivors regarding how their outlook can help them to seize the day. We'll be right back. Anna Jaworski has spoken around the world at congenital heart defect events, and she is available as a keynote or guest speaker for your event. Go to hearttoheartwithanna.com to learn more about booking Anna for your event. You can also find out more about the radio program. Keep up to date with CHD resources and information about advocacy groups, as well as read Anna's weekly blog. Anna wants you to stay well-connected and participate in the CHD community. Visit hearttoheartwithanna.com today. Welcome back to our show, Heart to Heart with Anna, a show for the congenital heart defect community. Today's show is Seizing the Day with Jim Larson, a congenital heart defect survivor. And we just finished talking with Jim about how he seizes the day and how he's become a more adaptable person. I really love some of the things that he has shared with us and different ways that he's learned how to, instead of dwelling on the things that he cannot do, finding other things that he can do. And that's true for anybody, whether they have a heart defect or not. So I really love some of the advice he's given us. But we only have a couple minutes left, and I want to talk to Jim about what the biggest obstacle is that he has to face living each day to the fullest today, given his heart defect. So that's your question, Jim. What's the biggest obstacle you've had to face in living each day to the fullest, given your heart defect today? Well, the biggest thing that I've already alluded to is somehow a stroke took place sometime around the time that I had the open heart surgery back in 62. It may have occurred at the time of the surgery. It may have occurred later or so, but it wasn't too long after the surgery that I started having problems with it. You see, back in those days, they had a heart bypass machine 
that basically worked pretty good, but sometimes there were problems with it. And I was also put in a partial hypothermic bath to cool my body down so that if there was some lack of oxygen, that would hopefully not cause any problems. But the stroke pattern was not confirmed until 1989. Before that time, I just kind of thought I was a little crazy because sometimes I would get panicky with the vertical feeling, particularly if I got tired, particularly if I, you know, got really emotional about something. And I went through a series of counseling and I never really could find a way to cope with it until I got into college and I got involved with this Minnesota Rovers and got around with all these activities. If I was being active, engaging with people, doing all these things, they may be seen as distractions, but it was a way of coping. Right. And from that point on, my wife sometimes says that I got too much energy. Well, if I'm not doing something, this motion feeling will start driving me crazy. Uh And the stroke is more than likely a result of congenital heart disease, maybe because of the surgery. And also in 2000, when I had the surgery at the Bayo, they actually found a hole in the top part of my heart that they sewed Mm -hmm. up. So possibly some clot got through that and maybe created the stroke. So the stroke happened a long time back in the 60s. They didn't actually find it until 1989. It confirmed what happened. That has been the biggest challenge. The secondary challenge has just been a lot of the emotional baggage that came through my family growing up and things that happened with my father and still dealing with some of the emotions of it. That kind of got got intertwined with it. Having emotional issues when dealing with a chronic condition, which it sounds like this off-balancedness that you Mm -hmm. were feeling, was very disconcerting and upsetting understandably upsetting. Mm -hmm. And so having to deal with the emotional fallout from that is to be expected, I would think. What advice Mm -hmm. would you give to congenital heart defect survivors regarding their own outlook on life and how they can seize the day? Because we know a lot of other congenital heart defect survivors have also had to deal with a stroke or some other condition after they've had their open heart surgery. You just got to find a way of building a good support system amongst your family and friends and just finding the thing that really engages you, whether it's music, whether it's writing, and (laughs) and doing outdoor activities if you're able to do them, that kind of thing. For me, like one of the biggest joys in playing music is we have a farmer's market about four blocks from our house, and Mm -hmm. a bunch of us go down there and we sit in a circle and we play music. We play old-time Appalachian music down there, and and all the neighbors are in there buying their produce, and those kinds of things are really joyful. It's just the informal jam sessions. That works for me. I'm starting to read a lot more than I used to. I'm a very slow reader, but as I get more fascinated with things, I just start reading more, and I go, oh, aha, you know, um, (laughs) everybody's got their stick. They just got to find it. And sometimes it can change as you go through life. Something was really, really working well for you for a while. And for some reason, either because of a physical disability or something else, you find something else that may be in that part of your life, maybe even more important. Because I struggle sometimes between all the time I spend playing music and I have pretty incredible family history on my mom's side with boxes Mm -hmm. full of stuff that people have written and... Mm -hmm. That takes time. Stained glass takes time. Reading Mm -hmm. takes time. It's just at any time in your life, it's okay. What is the most important thing that I can be doing right now that will help Mm -hmm. my emotional feeling, my happiness? And like I say, Mm -hmm. when you plug in gratitude, forgiveness, and kindness in there, it kind of helps set that. 
Absolutely. That's beautiful advice. And listeners, you are in for such a treat. Thank you so much, Jim. I have Mm -hmm. so enjoyed talking to you, and I always enjoy talking to you. And instead of our regular closing music, Jim is going to play for us on his dulcimer. So here we go. That concludes today's show, and please come back next week at noon Eastern Time on Tuesday. And until then, find them like us on Facebook. The oh. shows are always in the archives, so you can listen any day, anytime. But we do broadcast it at noon on Tuesdays. But follow our radio show and like us on Blog Talk Radio and Spreaker and Facebook. And remember, my friends, you are not alone. And here is Jim Larson seizing the day today, playing the Dulcimer class. Okay, I should probably credit this. This came from an Irish singer named Lorena McKinnett. And my wife is a DJ, and when, she, when the first time I heard this played on the radio, I broke into tears because I find mm-hmm. so much joy in the tune, but also the depth of not so much sadness, but just remembering, remembering the people in your lives. So here it is. <laughs> 